hope by now you are fully oriented after this day of orientation. Tonight I'd like to speak a little bit about the larger context of our practice. In some ways it feels as if this retreat is a gathering of friends, of very old friends, you know, meeting again in a situation where we've probably been meeting for lifetimes on this journey of ours. It's a journey that we could say has its source, its source of inspiration. in something that happened over 2,500 years ago, the enlightenment of the Buddha. You see, as you walk around the building, you see many Buddha images. Some of you may perhaps be wondering you know, what they are or what they represent or what our relationship to them is. The Buddha was a human being, he was a man. Who, upon contemplating certain very basic and obvious truths, that is, the truth of being born, of getting older, of getting sick, of dying kind of universal aspects of this process of existence. He was a man who motivated by the contemplation of those very basic truths, undertook to find out what it's all about. And just that very motivation is rare among people. And all around us we see people being born and getting old and getting sick and dying. Yet for the most part, it doesn't inspire us to inquire. We just kind of drift along with the flow of existence. But the Buddha, who at that time, before his awakening, was (coughs) named Siddhartha Gautama, he was unusual in in this way. And that is, he saw these universal truths and it touched some place so deeply inside of him, some place of inquiry, some place of investigation, some place of wanting to understand what the nature of this life is about. a huge undertaking to somehow disentangle the mind 
to disentangle our lives from the web of attachments and beliefs and ideas and opinions and tradition, all these things which keep us blindly going on in our lives, took this enormous amount of energy and courage to say, I don't want to just go along with that. I want to find out something that is most basic, most true. And so he made what is called the Great Renunciation. He renounced. He renounced his family. He renounced the kingdom. He renounced his way of being. He renounced his comfort. He renounced it all in order to look, in order to explore. And he spent six years searching in various ways, doing all kinds of um, ascetic practices. Perhaps some of you have seen there are some very striking images. They're called the image of the emaciated Buddha because it represents a Buddha image which represents Siddhartha Gautama in the time of his ascetic practice where it describes the diminishing amount of food that he would eat. In his quest for understanding, finally it was down to something like one grain of rice every fourth day, whatever. And in the image that's um, portrayed, it's said in the text that when he reached his stomach, to touch his stomach, he would touch his backbone. Go right through. So emaciated, so so totally exhausted. After six years of this kind of practice, he realized that in a phrase that you find very often in the Buddhist texts, that it was not tending to edification. (laughs) It was not really helping very much. This kind of extreme ascetic practice. All that was happening was that he was becoming weaker and weaker. So he took food after six years. He took food, he regained some strength, and he sat down under what is now called the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, India, and he sat down with the resolve, sat down under the tree, with the resolve that he was not going to get up from his seat until he had attained complete realization, until he had realized the deepest, most emancipating truth. Just picture yourself coming into the hall and making that kind of resolve, that you are not going to get up from your seat until you have penetrated to the deepest truth. when we reflect upon our own possibility of doing that, we can have some sense of appreciation and respect for the power of the Buddha's mind. The enormous strength and courage to make that resolution. It was his very good fortune, I suppose, good karma, that he was enlightened that very evening. And 
said that he spent the next six or seven weeks in the area around the Bodhi tree contemplating his understanding. He then began teaching. At first he was somewhat reluctant because he surveyed the world with his eye of wisdom, his eye of compassion. And he saw all these beings suffering. But he also saw how much difficulty there would be in going out and trying to teach, to explain what was true. People were so enmeshed, are so enmeshed, in desire and clinging and attachment and holding and views. And so his first, as the tradition has it, his first um, inclination was a lot of trouble. You know, people are not going to want to hear this. They're not going to want to listen to practice. But then again, he looked and he saw so much suffering. People wanting happiness and doing the very thing which causes pain and suffering, it moved him through the power of his compassion to begin teaching. We really are the heirs of his enlightenment. In the most extraordinary way, the teachings of the Buddha's enlightenment, of the Buddha's understanding, have been passed down through all these thousands of years in the most clear and direct and systematic way. It's this extraordinarily precious treasure which has been preserved and which we are all the heirs to. And you will see in the course of this retreat, as we make our way through the intricacies of the mind, through all the subtleties and the nuances and levels and strengths and weaknesses and doubts and fears, see that Throughout our journey, there's this amazingly direct and clear guide and path and way. So it gives tremendous, tremendous inspiration to us in our practice. These teachings, these Vipassana teachings, kind of meditation is called Vipassana meditation, comes from the very earliest teachings of the Buddha. As far as we can tell, it comes most directly from what he actually taught, unencumbered by elaboration over the centuries of development of Buddhism. And so we're going back, we're going back in this, in this very direct way to the source. And the teachings were elaborated in a very famous discourse called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness. 
This whole technique of vipassana, of insight meditation, is the practice of what the Buddha laid out in this particular discourse, the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. So it's as if we're on this very direct connection. We're connected very accurately and precisely with the energy of the Buddha's enlightenment and all those beings who have walked this path in all these thousands of years. We have tremendous support for what we're doing. And in a very real sense, we also come here together to actually meet the Buddha. Not metaphorically, not through an image, but to actually meet, see, embrace, become one with the Buddha. There was one monk in the Buddha's time who used to sit right up front in the congregation of monks and would just stare at the, the image, the physical form of the Buddha because he was so beautiful, such a beautiful being. And he would sit there and stare and gaze. And this went on for some months until finally the Buddha reprimanded him. He said, you can look at this form for a hundred years and you won't see the Buddha. It's only those who see the Dharma, who understand the Dharma, who see the Buddha. So really what we're doing in this retreat, what we're undertaking, is to reveal to ourselves or uncover or open to or unfold our essential Buddha nature. So in that sense, our undertaking is not one of reaching out for anything. It's not one of ambition. It's not one of becoming something. It's not a reaching out. It's a settling back and an opening. If you can understand this, and you will understand it on many levels as the retreat goes on, you find that it's a tremendous relief. Because each moment is our Buddha nature revealing itself. In every moment of seeing or hearing or smelling or sensation in the body or a thought or an emotion, Every moment is the Dharma, is the truth revealing itself to us. And our task is to settle back and to open to the truth of each moment. We don't have to change anything and we don't have to make anything special happen. 
It's to be present. To be present in a totally full and complete and exact and balanced way. So what we'll be doing for these three months is a refining of our perception rather than an effort to become something. Do you see the difference of the, the difference of the quality of energy in those two things? One is a reaching out in which we're off balance and striving and ambitious and frustrated, and the other is a settled backedness into the moment with the energy to continually refine the perception of that moment. As we do this, whole worlds of understanding begin to open up within us. We meet the Buddha, we become the Buddha. One thing that may help you to understand the meditative process a bit and to avoid some confusion, there are two main streams of meditative practice. One is the development of one-pointed concentration and the other is the development of insight or wisdom. In the development of one-pointed concentration, we take a single object, anything. It can be a mantra, it can be a light, it can be a sound, it can be a visualization. And we train the mind to stay on that object and it becomes absorbed in it, it becomes steady on it, it becomes powerful. All sorts of psychic phenomena begin to happen. Tremendous tranquility. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing in Vipassana is not to have the mind become absorbed in a particular object, but to be aware of changing objects. To be aware of this whole passing show of changing phenomena. And so there's one basic, you could, you could call it a basic principle or a basic guideline for this retreat. And if you can integrate it into your understanding, it will be of tremendous help and value to you. And the, the basic principle of Vipassana practice is that it is not important what it is that's happening. What is important is how we are relating to what's happening. What is happening is beyond our control. You'll go through everything. The ups and the downs and highs and lows and happy and sad and depressed and excited. And the whole range of experience will arise. What we're practicing is not to have a particular state emerge or stay fixed. 
what we're practicing is learning how to relate to all the changing elements of experience with balance, with openness, with sensitivity. So again, when we understand this, there can be a huge sigh of relief because we don't have to be concerned with having any one particular experience. Whatever is given, whatever is presented, is fine. Our job is to open to it. Something that may help you get into the spirit of the practice. In one of the retreats that I was doing, uh, it actually was in Bodhgaya a couple of years ago. I was reflecting upon the difference in practice when we practice with the sense of obligation. You know, I ought to be mindful. It's our duty to be mindful. You've come here and you've arranged your lives and it's your moral obligation to be mindful. And when I saw it from that perspective, all my mind did was rebel. You know, that may be my moral duty, but I'm not going to do it. And finding all these ways to resist. And I'm sure you will explore the (laughs) many subtleties of resistance. But then something flipped, and instead of thinking of it as my duty, that it's something I was supposed to do, I began to see each moment as an invitation to be mindful. So each moment's experience was just another invitation to me to again be aware. And that changed the whole attitude, the whole energy. I didn't feel imprisoned by my duty, but rather I was happy and grateful for another opportunity. So I put that out simply as a suggestion for you to explore a little bit the attitude that you are bringing to the practice because the attitude will very much condition your experience. It's so wonderful to be silent together. And I think I'll stop now.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.